For today's show, we have another special guest. We have Paul Olson in the house. <laughs> Paul, thanks for being here with us today. Um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about you. What what what's your business? Um, where do you hail from? Just just get us going. Get us started. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm excited to be here. I appreciate it. So, <clears throat> like Jeff said, Paul Olson, uh, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Go Cardinals. Um, when I was 14, I moved uh, to Utah. I went to high school out here. Uh, ended up going to uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, got my uh, master's degree in tax at BYU. In tax? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, started my career with PricewaterhouseCoopers. What, why, why did you choose to do your master's degree in tax? Like, what was that draw? <laughs> That's a good question. So a uh, significant mentor of mine, to be honest with you, is my father-in-law. Actually, okay. Michael Beck. Um, he had a, has a very successful, uh, firm locally. I saw his lifestyle, um, obviously married his daughter, um, and wanted to replicate something like that for my family, live in a, a smaller town, but run a small business. And, and that was very attractive to me. Okay. So your mentor, Mr. Beck suggested go master in tax or, or I don't know that he so much suggested that. That's what he did. Okay. Um, uh, lead by example, right? Um, so I knew that, hey, if, if I did tax, uh, there's really two. At BYU, they push you in two stems, okay. audit or tax. Okay. Um, audit's more of like, hey, I got to live in a big city, right? Okay. We're working on Nike or Apple or, or whatnot. I knew I wanted to come back to Utah eventually with my family, Um and so tax was, was really the way to go. And did you always know you wanted to have your own firm? Absolutely. 100%. Okay. So you started your journey post-graduate school. You worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers, right? Correct. Correct. And then why did you choose to work there? Was it to get basically some more training and get those credentials? Like, talk to us through that journey. Yeah. Yeah. So the big four, as, as they're known, PricewaterhouseCoopers is one of the big four. Um, that training ground is, is bar none. Uh, that's the best you can get. Okay. Right? So you spend time there, develop uh, professionally, technically. Um, that's probably the best place you can go post-graduation uh, to one of those big four firms. Uh, it carries a little bit of clout on the resume, obviously, uh, coming out of one of those firms. And it gave me the confidence to come out and say, hey, I can do this on my own. That's right? cool. How yeah. long were you at Pricewaterhouse? I was there about two and a half years. And you felt like that was enough time to get your... Too much time. Too much time. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what could you have done? Could you have done a year, do you think, to get the same level of training? Yeah, I mean, you've, you've, yeah, you've got to be, you know, over 2,000 hours to actually get your CPA license. So you've okay. got to go work for, under a CPA. Right? Oh, okay. Um, but just kind of our circumstances. Um, and so that's kind of where I, where I landed and, and made the jump from there. And I, and I, loved, I loved my experience there. Nothing, nothing against PricewaterhouseCoopers, just not for everyone. Right? Did you create your firm... Right after that? So I went and worked with my father-in-law okay. uh, for some time. He mentored me. Um, after a few years, um, I had a lot, of, a lot of my own clientele, and it made more sense to uh, start doing some of my own stuff. And we still have some business together, uh, but he, he definitely helped me springboard into my own thing. And at what point did you become a CPA? So I became a CPA at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Okay. I finished this. There's four... Uh, very difficult CPA exams. Um, finished those at PricewaterhouseCoopers in Texas. Um, and then do you, a CPA. do you have to be housed under a company to get those hours? We do. Okay. Yep. Yep. They signed off for me. Okay. Got it. So it's almost like working on your specialization in the medical field where you have, okay. Got exactly. It. Exactly. And then 
It, well, I guess I'll ask this next question. And by the way, the reason why we're doing this show right here, right now, it's the end of 2023. And you know this better than anybody. What starts happening at this time of the year, everybody comes out of the woodworks. Everybody. <laughs> figuring out what their income situation is looking like, what they can do to mitigate their tax um, liability. So I think this, this, this show and this timing is extremely opportune. So that people can check a few more boxes and get a few more strategies put in place before the clock start uh, before the clock strikes twelve for twenty twenty four. Exactly. So, tell me the difference between a CPA and a tax professional because they're 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 distinct. Yeah. So, what's the yeah. main difference between the two? So, CPA is is that brings the confidence that this person knows what they're talking about. Really, um, with a CPA, there's certain work that you can do professionally that an enrolled agent or a tax professional can't do. The the CPA license, I hold a license that I can sign certain professional documents, financial statements, uh, certifying that hey, these these are represented um, fairly, right? According to generally here in the U.S. GAAP standards. Um, without that CPA license, you can't, you can't sign like an audit report or a reviewed financial. You have to have that license in order to sign those. Okay. Maybe explain what gap is. Generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, it's here in the U S it's how you present your financial statements, revenue, expense, your balance sheet, assets, liabilities, equity. It's, it's a standard that all businesses, specifically public companies, um, abide by so that when you're analyzing financial statements you're using the same set of standards no matter the company and that's the point of an audit to make sure that those are actually being presented fairly okay excellent so let, let me ask you this next question um for for those tuning into this episode and they're wondering okay am i being taken care of properly through the advice that i'm receiving through my tax professional or my cpa i guess what are some guiding principles what should the viewers look for in regards to having somebody in the role in which you play that will actually take really good care of them, not just in a tax preparation sense, because yeah. there's tax preparers out there and there's tax planners or tax strategists, very different skill sets. So what should the viewers look for in seeking out a professional that actually knows what he or she is doing? Yeah, good question. So in a CPA, you're really looking for someone that's uh, proactive and not reactive, right? If you're just sending your stuff at the end of the year and you're having a conversation with your CPA or your tax professional after December 31st, mm. you're done, right? Um, those conversations need to be happening right now. We're, we're mid-November. Um, and where we really try to focus is, hey, we want to stay engaged. You want to find a CPA that's engaged with you all throughout the year. Um, and not even just once at the very end of the year. Like, hey, are, are, are we, are we uh, meeting on a quarterly basis to go over financial statements? Um, who's taking care of those financial statements? Is it you? Is it your wife? Is it, who, who is it, right? Is it us? Um, so that's the biggest piece there. And then communication. A lot of times uh, <clears throat> small firms or CPA firms will, will grow so much that the communication lacks. Um, and so that's kind of a focus for someone that's looking for a tax professional, work, looking to work for a firm is what kind of communication am I going to get? And is this a proactive relationship or am, am I just sending documents at the end of the year and they're telling me where it landed? Got it. So you specifically, Paul, what do you do to make sure that you're proactive with your clients? Yeah. So, so most of our clients will, we have this, uh, we call it a virtual CFO model. 
um, where we are in there. We set up a QuickBooks online file for our clients and we're in categorizing transactions every single month. Um, our team goes and does that. And then on a quarterly basis, we're having calls with those clients to go over the financial statements. And when there's a big transaction that needs to happen, whether that's purchasing a vehicle, make an investment into real estate, we're walking through, all right, what are the tax ramifications of this investment or this purchase? Uh, that is how you're proactive with your CPA versus reactive would be, hey, I did all this, here's the documents. So for those tuning in, you should ask, ask yourselves, is my firm that I'm working with, are they proactive with me? Are they reaching out? Or am I having to be the one that's always reaching out? And when I reach out, does it take a day, two days, three days, four days, et cetera? Again, do I have a tax preparer, which you can go on TurboTax and go online <laughs> right, and get right. that thing done and pay literally nothing. Or you can actually get with a strategist, somebody that really cares about your specific situation. So there's thousands and thousands of pages of tax code, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. And then what, what I understand is there's maybe only 40 to 50 pages that tell you how to pay. The balance is how to not pay. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess what are some of the best strategies um, to be able to mitigate your tax situation on a yearly? What are, what are some of the best practices that we should all be looking for? Yeah. So I would say that the number one piece, the foundation of your tax strategy is your accounting your financial statements. So that's where the bookkeeping. That's why you in. have to be on you, top of it. You have to right? at a bare minimum monthly yeah. closing out of books, right? Yeah. If you're going through credit card statements or bank statements at the end of the year with a highlighter, you're dope. You're toast. You're, you're dead toast. in the water. There yeah. was no planning that went into it. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I would say the foundation is, is your accounting, your bookkeeping, right? Um, from there, you're looking at things like depreciation, for okay. example. Okay. I'm going to go buy uh, a truck. I'm going to go buy a car. Well, what type of car you sh should you buy? A lot of times that should be a car over 6,000 pounds. So you can take advantage of what's called bonus depreciation where you're accelerating. And the, the, the threshold, the minimum is 6,000 pounds. Is that correct? 6,000 pounds. So give yeah. me some examples of vehicles that are 6,000 pounds. Uh, my truck that I drove here today okay. is over 6,000 pounds, right? Um, and I can take that truck and apply what's called bonus depreciation on that and you can and accelerate, accelerate it. the yep. amount of deduction that I'm going to take. Um, so that's a big piece. The second piece is how are you structured as a business to start with? Are you running everything through your personal name or do you have an S corporation set up? Do you have an LLC set up? Um, those pieces are pertinent to how you are taxed. Um, hopefully everyone that's operating a business. Uh, generally, you want to be an S corporation. There's situations where you would be a partnership. Uh, rental real estate is always going to be held in an LLC. You don't want that in an S corporation. So you're well, structuring. So let's pause on that. Why would you not want real estate rental income in an S corp and you would want it in an LLC? So you'd want your operating business. If you've got an operating business, you want that inside of an S corporation. Uh, rental real estate, that income is passive income right? So it's not going to be subject to self-employment tax, whereas some of the S corporation stuff is, right? And the whole idea behind the S corporation is, hey, if I'm going to make $100,000, I'm going to pay myself a $25,000, W-2. And it's only that $30,000 on the W-2 that's subject to the self-employment tax. The rest of that $70,000 that you earned, well, you can take that as a distribution, um, that's not subject to self-employment tax. Um, I would say that's probably the number one piece 
uh, that if you're not implementing that strategy, that's like tax planning 101, 100%. Okay. What about like the Augusta rule and paying your kids and some of those other um, tax strategies? Yeah. Talk to us about those. Yeah. So the Augusta rule is awesome. Um, I, I would say a lot of people probably miss that as well. What the Augusta rule is, is <clears throat> it allows you to rent your home uh, to your business no more than 14 days a year. And your business pays you personally rent to say you rent out your house to hold board meetings. Well, who's on your board? For some people, it might uh, be you and your partner, right? Um, so you hold a board meeting once a month and, and charge your business $1,200. Well, your business just, just took a $1,200 expense for that month. You're going to do this every single month. And you don't have to pick that up as income on your personal tax return. That's way better than saying, hey, I'm going to take square footage and do the home office deduction, right? If you're doing the home office deduction, you're working with the wrong people, right? The Augusta rule is where you want to be. And do you know why it's called the Augusta rule? I do. Because it's all tournament. Ex yeah, ex explain <laughs> that. Was that. That's kind of a cool story. Yeah, yeah. So it's called the Augusta rule because um, <clears throat> when they'd have these PGA golf tournaments, um, there was no housing uh, for everyone to come to these tournaments. And so residents... Um, would actually be renting out their house uh, to everyone that wanted to attend the golf tournaments. And so they kind of had this little caveat like, hey, we're not going to make you pay in income tax on renting out your house to everyone yeah. that wants so to come out to the So props to the PGA golf tour. industry and the PGA <laughs> yeah, no for allowing the Augusta rule to be <laughs> the you. tax code. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, okay, so Paying now, your kids. You asked about paying your kids. You want to go through that? Yeah, let's go through yeah. that as well. Okay. Paying your and, children. And, and let me... Guy, like, again, whoever's watching, like, we can say, oh, I'll let my CPA handle all this. I'll let my tax professional handle all this. I just don't think that's fair. I think us as responsible people, business people, whatever label you want to give yourself, you have to understand these basics. Um, knowledge is not power. Knowledge is potential. It's the application of knowledge that's power. With this knowledge, with, this, um, app, with these applications, we can actually hold our team accountable and make sure that we're guiding ourselves through the proper channels to be able to be as tax efficient as possible. So let's go ahead and talk now about the kids and paying the kids and how yeah, that works. Absolutely. It's uh, a <clears throat> people consume information. You pay for organization, right? That's what a good CPA does for you. It, it takes, they take the information, they organize it and they implement it for you. So talk about paying your kids. If you have a small business, um, you can put your kids on payroll, and for this year, for 2023, uh, you can pay your children up to $13,850 each. Per, per child. Year, okay. Per child. Per child. Um, what does that do for you? Um, your business is able to take an expense for $13,850, right? You write that expense off, and your children, because they're under the standard deduction threshold, um, they don't have to pick that up as income, nor do they have to file a tax return. So have kids, <laughs> <laughs> have kids. That's what you tell your clients, huh? <laughs> have kids. <laughs> that's part of your, uh, tax planning the, for you the know year. What? I've got five kids. That's part of my tax planning strategy. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I have five kids too. So yeah, good cool. deductions there. Nice <laughs> work right. five. Okay. What other, so let's go back to depreciation. We talked about the vehicle, 6,000 pounds plus. There's a lot of vehicles that qualify for it. Trucks, yeah. SUVs, et cetera. Yep. Um, I've, I've, I've leveraged that quite often. Mm -hmm. Um, what, uh, let's talk about real estate. How does okay. depreciation 
um, work in the world of real estate, both multifamily, single family, um, Airbnb, so forth and so on. Let's talk about depreciation in the world of real estate. Yeah. So let's split this up into kind of two different pieces. You've got the, the, the short-term rental side of things and you've got uh, long-term rentals, we'll say. Okay. Depreciation is beautiful. Um, the way it works in real estate is there's a couple different ways. Um, <clears throat> for an average investor, you can go buy a rental property, right? Um, you get rental income, say, you know, thousand bucks a month or whatever it is, right? Uh, you go take that to your CPA. They're going to, they're going to take that rental property and they're going to, they're going to deduct a portion of the value of the home for land, which is non-depreciable. Right. Um, and then they're going to take the asset. They're going to depreciate it over 27 and a half years. If it's residential real estate, just for this example, it takes a long time, uh, to recoup, uh, rental real estate over 27 and a half years to get the depreciation for that. Where you can get a little bit more aggressive um, is potentially qualifying as a real estate professional, right? Um, what that allows you to do is it essentially allows you to push passive losses, um, which would be rental real estate, um, through and suck up some of your ordinary or active income. So for a real estate professional, <clears throat> what that would look like is say they're making $600,000 a year right? They go buy two rental properties and perform what's called a cost segregation. Company or a firm comes in, they perform a study, and they separately identify the assets inside the home, right? And they say, all right, we think there's two or $300,000 of five-year, seven-year, or 15-year assets inside this home. We're going to separately identify those. We're going to apply bonus depreciation to accelerate the depreciation into not over 27 and a half years, but one year, right? So all of a sudden you have this, this rental real estate company that's pushing out $400,000 in losses all due to depreciation. That gets sucked over into your other active income, boom, eliminate it, eliminates it, and there's no tax paid. Um, that's a beautiful thing. I love okay. seeing that on the Fantastic. Returns. Awesome. Yeah. So... In order to become and have the designation of being a real estate professional, does it require you to have a realtor license or how does that work? So you do not have to have a real estate license to be qualified as a real estate professional. Generally speaking, um, there's really kind of two things here. Um, there's material participation. So there's there's seven rules to qualify that you material, materially participate in the real estate. Um, and generally it's 750 hours a year. So if you're spending 750 hours a year on real estate, that, that can be a couple different things, right? You could be a realtor. You could be, uh, maybe home flipping is what you do, uh, construction, right? If that's your main gig and you're spending seven, 750 hours a year on that, you are a real estate professional and you absolutely should be implementing this strategy. Okay. You know, yeah. beautiful. And thanks for explaining that. So let's say that you don't classify as such. Let's say you're a CEO of an, a company that has, you know, they're, they're selling widgets. So how can I take advantage of passive losses? How can I take advantage of depreciation if the majority of my income is outside of real estate and it's obviously active income as most of our viewers are? Right. How right. would you do that? Good question. So 
hopefully, well, if, if you're in that case, so there's, there's really three income brackets. There's, there's active income, there's portfolio income, um, and then there's passive income, right? Uh, you, with passive losses, you have to offset passive losses with passive income. Sure. So a lot of times they might have other investments that are kicking out 50, 100, 150, $200,000. All of those losses, those passive losses that are coming from maybe they invest in a real estate fund, right? Those can offset your other passive income dollar for dollar. Beautiful. And then how long do I have? Let's say I book depreciation in 2023. How long do I have to be able to deplete that full um, dollar amount of depreciation. Yeah. So whatever, whatever you don't use in the current year that will roll forward indefinitely. Okay. So you sell the property five years from now, six years from now, no 50 problem. years from now. Absolutely. So for me, I had a K one that was delivered pretty late, um, for 2022. Okay. And I, I received that K one on a Thursday. I prepped all my taxes on a Tuesday and I didn't have time post Tuesday because that was the absolute latest deadline. And I wasn't expecting the K-1 to come in the way in which it came in. It was higher than I anticipated. In fact, I wasn't, my team, we even forgot that that K-1 was out there from one of the investments we had made as a limited partner. And it was, it was not a good surprise. (laughs) Sure. You saw income on paper, but it wasn't a good surprise due to your tax preparation. And my team does a phenomenal job. They, they close the books out monthly. But what I'm getting at is, because I had bought depreciation three years prior that I hadn't completely utilized, I was able to take that depreciation and offset that K-1, and it didn't really shift my tax liability due to the fact that I had booked depreciation when I did. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a real number. It's a real asset. It's a real thing. I call it phantom cash flow. It's cash flow that you don't necessarily see coming in through your P&L, or you don't even see it on the balance sheet, if you will, at times. But it's real. It's, it's phantom, and it's there, and it really helps you. So either... Either you go buy depreciation or you pay more taxes to Joe Biden and company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So those those passive losses just kind of sit in a bucket. Yeah, which and I when think you want to use them, don't understand that. Boom. Yeah, it's it, it's such a powerful tool. And me personally, I don't know if a more powerful asset class that can help us get depreciation than real estate. Absolutely. And that's why 100%. I love the world of real estate. And that's why I live in it day in and day out. Real estate's the way to go. Be beyond beyond the depreciation. Um, there's there's 1031 exchanges right that you can yeah do. so maybe Say, maybe explain 1031 as well yeah so what <clears throat> one of the, one of the biggest ways uh, that you can transfer wealth uh, to your heirs is through real estate and the way that the wealthiest do it is via 1031 exchanges. Okay, so a 1031 exchange is when say you've got an asset, you've got a real estate asset. Okay. You want to sell that asset and get into a new real estate asset or a like kind asset is the terminology that's used. Well, what you can do is you can sell that real estate, use a 1031 intermediary, right? And you basically defer the gains on the sale of that asset into the basis of your new property. Well, okay, that's great. You don't pay tax on it, right? But you eventually... We'll have to pay tax. So I sell a, uh, an asset, a piece of real estate. I go find a asset that's common and kind. And then I don't pay taxes on the sale of asset A because it's rolling into asset B. Correct. Via a 1031. Absolutely. And then I use a, thir- a third party 1031 exchange agent yep. that can help me through that, through that process. Yep. Title company that specializes in 1031s. Yeah, absolutely. So great. 
you can keep doing that. You keep rolling that, rolling that. You, you could start with, with a residential rental property and be into some massive portfolio by the end of your life. Well, what happens when you die? When you die, I don't want to talk about death. That's kind of a sad thing. But when you die, your heirs get what's called a step up in basis. So the fair market value of that rental real estate, the day you die, is the value that your heirs receive it on. So they could turn around and sell it the very next day and have zero tax because you kicked it your whole life down the road, down the road, you die, your heirs get it at fair market value. And th- and that that's why, and thanks for explaining that. That's why I love long-term holding of real estate. hundred percent. So there's a way. So, so what's interesting with real estate is you can do a cash out refinance. Mm-hmm. And when you do a cash out refinance, when you have a, a, enough NOI in the project and the building, you can actually strip out equity. You strip it out and it's in the form of debt. And obviously you don't pay taxes on debt. So when you sell a company, you have a liquidity event and you pay long-term capital gains. Yep. More, more than likely you've held the company for over a year. Right. So you pay 20, 20%, whatever the, whatever the number is. But if I want to hold the asset and sell it, but not sell it, you do a cash, you do out, a cash out refinance. 100%. So let's say I put a million bucks into a project. I can refinance it in two, three, four, five years at the latest, get my million bucks out tax-free. I still own the asset. My cash is back in my pocket and I'm still getting all the monthly checks in perpetuity. If at any point in time, I feel that there's a lot of deferred maintenance in the building, it's going to cost me a lot to hold it, then I can say it's time to sell. Cap rates are good. Let me go ahead and find a, a like property. Let me 1031 it and let, let me avoid tax again. Yep. Just keep rolling that just into keep the rolling. next property. So anytime I do a disposition, I always make sure I have a sister product that I can roll into so that my investors can choose to not have to pay tax if they don't want to take those gains out. Right. Right. Yeah. So that, that. that's fantastic. That's <laughs> beautiful. That. Yep. Okay. What other, what are the best practices are out there in regards to um, tax benefits or just any other strategies that can help, help us out that we may not be thinking of today? Yeah. Very good question. Uh, so we went over the real estate. We went over kind of some of the depreciation. Um, I would say um, <clears throat> one of the key pieces is for, for a small business owner, right? Um, your payroll. For example, this, this is a very simple one, but people miss this a lot. Um, you're, if, if you're earning $100,000, you got to make sure that your payroll is really dialed in so that you're not paying too much in W-2 salary uh, because that's subject to all the self-employment tax, right? I have uh, people that I meet all the time that 100% of their earnings they're taking in W-2. That's awful. Terrible. Right? <laughs> so, so I say this and you tell me where I'm off or where I'm right. I say the worst income is no income. <laughs> Correct. Second worst income is W2 income. 100%. Third worst, not bad, actually pretty good is 1099. And then the goat is K1 income. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. <laughs> okay, good. I do agree with that. So yeah. So how do you, so, so keep going there. So how do you not do as many W2s and yeah. And then, I, and then so, after that, let's talk about 1099 and what all what all we can write off, what all the deductions we have via 1099. Yeah, yeah. So with W-2, you you really want your W-2. You want to satisfy, there's, there's a law, right? The IRS says that you have to pay, if, if you own a small S corporation, you have to pay yourself a W-2 salary, right? They say that it needs to be reasonable compensation. Well, what does that mean? 
just has to be reasonable. Okay. okay? Um, so say the, the example of a hundred thousand, you've got a hundred thousand um, dollars. You're going to pay yourself a salary of maybe $35,000. We'll say, right. Well, you've got $35,000 in W2 income. You really want that to be as small as possible because that's subject to the self-employment tax. The rest of that spread to a hundred grand, you're taking that as a distribution, not subject to 15.3% self-employment tax, right? So you never want to be making money inside of an S corporation and take a massive W2, right? Because that's 100% subject to 15.3% yeah. self-employment tax. So people miss that a lot. That's a very basic one, but I see it missed all the time. And unless you're staying on top of it. What's the highest percentage of tax you'd pay being W-2? Is it 30, 30, 37%. 37%. Yeah. And then if you live in some of these states, you're paying up to 13%? Yeah. Like California? Yeah. California. So this is what's crazy. High income W-2 earners. <laughs> They're working for free till June or almost July. (laughs) So they've been working for the government until the month of, of, until the summer has hit them. And that's when they can finally start collecting a paycheck. That's why we have to understand these principles. And I I say this too, the system isn't broken. The system is working to perfection. We might be broken because we don't understand how the system works. So we have to just learn the system and operate through the system. But it's, it's working perfectly. Yep. We just have to understand the rules of the game. Yeah, we absolutely. have to understand the optics. Which is a which is a big plug that the United States incentivizes entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. And you want to pay less tax? Be an entrepreneur. One hundred percent. I could not have said that better. That's fantastic. <laughs> Love that. Okay, so now let's talk about ten ninety nine. What are what are the different things that um, being a ten ninety nine um, contractor? Um, would be able to write off like travel, literature, apparel, all that stuff. Let's maybe go over that, how that works. Absolutely. So 1099 compensation, hopefully that's flowing through to you through an S corporation, right? Um, A lot of things that that maybe were, maybe you went from a W-2 job to 1099, right? A lot of things, a lot of your personal expenses that you had prior to being 1099 are actually legitimate business expenses. So for example... Uh, if you're paying for internet, right? Who's not paying for internet? Well, that's a business expense. You need that to operate your business, right? Pretty basic. Your cell phone bill, right? So how, how much of your internet bill can you claim? Really, you 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 look at that and say, if, if it's in an office, right? If, if it's okay. at your office, 100%, right? Your, your home, home internet, take a portion of it. Take a portion, right? And then, how do you calculate the portion? Is there math? There's there. No, there's not necessarily a, a math to that. All right, what portion of the home internet? How much time am I using this okay. for business when Makes I'm sense. at my house? Right. Um, Same thing of cell phone. Yep, yep. Your cell phone, right? Uh, for a lot of people that are traveling for maybe sales, right? The per diem is a huge one, right? How so, does the per diem work? <clears throat> so the per diem is basically you calculate how many days you are out of state working right and it's really the the best ones of meals and incidentals uh per diem so that can be anywhere from like 57 to 63 dollars a day that you are able to write off as per diem for your travel so you're not writing off your meals you're taking the per diem a lot of times 63 bucks a day is going to be more than what you'd actually spend sure right depending on what city you're in absolutely so for people that are maybe aren't are not depreciating their cars they could take a mileage deduction got it right so is it an either or Either or. Yep. You got to decide, all right, I've got this vehicle. Do I want to take a mileage deduction or do I want to take depreciation? And once you decide, you got to stick with it. And then going back to the bonus accelerated, this year it's 80, correct? Correct. Next year, 60. 60. It's going down. It's phasing out. 20. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's phasing out. 
recommendation is book as much investments as you can now that have depreciation attached to it. Because if you book it in 23, you're booking the 80% threshold on the bonus accelerated side and you inherit that for an ongoing basis. Yep. So if you wait to next year to do the same investment, you can only claim 60% of the bonus accelerated depreciation that that investment grants you. When we, when we talked about real estate cost segregations, right? Um, I mean, if you're going to buy real estate, buy it before the end of this year. You got to do it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, because that bonus depreciation, which creates all of that loss mm-hmm. to suck up your ordinary income, that's going down to 60% next year. Now, you don't lose the depreciation. It just takes you longer to recoup it. The whole, the whole strategy is that you can accelerate it, you know, year one, year two, right? So buy real estate in 2023. Right. Don't wait to buy real estate. Buy real estate and wait. The best investment <laughs> on earth is earth. Buy more earth. They're not making more of it. Absolutely. So I love that. So let's, this has been fantastic. Hopefully everybody's gotten a whole bunch of different gems. I can see the production team here in the studio. They're like taking notes. They're nodding their heads. They're like, minds are blown with all these best practices. So this has been great. For the sake of time, let's close it out with this. The show is called Live Life by Design. You live life by design. That way you don't live your life by default. You're the CEO of you. You control you. You tell the week what needs to happen. You tell the month what needs to happen. You tell the year what needs to happen. You're in full control. Give us a send off with everything that you've learned in life, father, um, business owner, husband, etc. Maybe give us a really good best practice on how you, Paul, live your life by design. Yeah. Uh, good question. I would probably say the best business decision that I ever made was when I was 16 years old. And then when I was 22 years old, uh, I started dating my wife when I was 16. I married her when I was 22 years old. Um, so as far as like personal business advice, um, the person you spend the most time with is the person that's going to have the most impact on your life. And because I am completely convinced that I chose the right person uh, to spend my life with, business, personal, everything that I do is, is magnified. It's enhanced because of the partner that I'm doing life with. And that goes with anything. That goes with your business partners. The people you spend your time with, uh, you become like them, and they influence you more than you think they do. So choose wisely who you're spending your time with, and uh, business will be a lot better because of it. Beautifully said. Way to send us off. Much love to you. (laughs) Much love to everybody listening. That's a wrap. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Appreciate Appreciate it. it.